0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster Part 16. Dear Gordon, That was an obnoxious, beastly, low-down trick not to send me a cheering line for four weeks just because, in a period of abnormal stress, I once let you go for three. I had really begun to be worried for fear you tumbled into the Potomac. My chicks would miss you dreadfully. They love their Uncle Gordon. Please remember that you promised to send them a donkey. Please also remember that I am a busier person than you. It's a lot harder to run the John Greer home than the House of Representatives. Besides, you have more efficient people to help. This isn't a letter. It's an indignant remonstrance. I'll write to-morrow, or the next day. S. P.S. On reading your letter over again, I am slightly mollified, but dinna think I believe I your soft words. I can weel ye only flatter when ye speak sae fair. July seventeenth, dear Judy, I have a history to recount. This, please remember, is Wednesday next. So at half past two o'clock, our little Sophie was bathed and brushed and clothed in fine linen, and put in charge of a trusty orphan, with anxious instructions to keep her clean. At three-thirty to the minute, never have I known a human being being so disconcertingly businesslike as J. F. Bretland, an automobile of expensive foreign design rolled up to the steps of this imposing chateau. A square-shouldered, square-jawed personage, with a chopped-off moustache and a manner that inclines one to hurry, presented himself three minutes later at my library door. He greeted me briskly as Miss McCosh. I gently corrected him, and he changed to Miss McKim. I indicated my most soothing armchair and invited him to take a light refreshment after his journey. He accepted a glass of water—I admire a temperate parent—and evinced an impatient desire to be done with the business. So I rang the bell, and ordered the little Sophie to be brought down. "'Hold on, Miss McGee,' he said to me. "'I'd rather see her in her own environment. I will go with you to the playroom or corral or wherever you keep your youngsters.' So I led him to the nursery, where thirteen or fourteen mites and gingham rompers were tumbling about on mattresses on the floor. Sophie, alone in the glory of feminine petticoats, was ensconced in the blue ginghamed arms of a very bored orphan. She was squirming and fighting to get down, and her feminine petticoats were tightly wound about her neck. I took her in my arms, smoothed her clothes, wiped her nose, and invited her to look at the gentleman. That child's whole future hung upon five minutes of sunniness and instead of a single smile, she whined. Mr. Bretland shook her hand in a very gingerly fashion, and chirruped to her as you might to a pup. Sophie took not the slightest notice of him, but turned her back and buried her face in my neck. He shrugged his shoulders, supposed that they could take her on trial. She might suit his wife. He himself didn't want one, anyway. And we turned to go out. Then who should come toddling straight across his path but that little sunbeam, Allegra? Exactly in front of him she staggered, threw her arms about like a windmill, and plumped down on all fours. He hopped aside with great agility to avoid stepping on her, and then picked her up and set her on her feet. She clasped her arms about his leg, and looked up at him with a gurgling laugh. Daddy, fro baby up! He is the first man, barring the doctor, whom the child had seen for weeks, and evidently he resembles somewhat her almost forgotten father. J. F. Bretland picked her up and tossed her in the air as handily as though it were a daily occurrence, while she ecstatically shrieked her delight then when he showed signs of lowering her she grasped him by an ear and a nose and drummed a tattoo on his stomach with both feet no one could ever accuse allegra of lacking vitality j f disentangled himself from her endearments and emerged rumpled as to hair but with a firm-set jaw he set her on her feet but retained her little doubled-up fist this is the kid for me he said i don't believe i need to look any further I explained that we couldn't separate little Allegra from her brothers, but the more I objected, the stubborner his jaw became. We went back to the library and argued about it for half an hour. He liked her heredity, he liked her looks, he liked her spirit, he liked her. If he was going to have a daughter foisted on him, he wanted one with some ginger. He'd be hanged if he'd take that other whimpering little thing, it wasn't natural. But if I gave him Allegra, he would bring her up as his own child and see that she was provided for. For the rest of her life, did I have any right to cut her out from all that just for a lot of sentimental nonsense? The family was already broken up. The best I could do for them now was to provide for them individually. Take all three, said I quite brazenly, but no, he couldn't consider that his wife was an invalid, and one child was all that she could manage. Well, I was in a dreadful quandary; It seemed such a chance for the child, and yet it did seem so cruel to separate her from those two adoring little brothers. I knew that if the Bretlands adopted her legally, they would do their best to break all ties with the past, and the child was still so tiny she would forget her brothers as quickly as she had her father. Then I thought about you, Judy, and of how bitter you have always been, because when that family wanted to adopt you, the asylum wouldn't let you go. You have always said that you might have had a home too, like the other children, but that Mrs. Lippett stole it away from you. Was I, perhaps, stealing little Allegra's home from her? With the two boys it would be different. They could be educated and turned out to shift for themselves. But to a girl, a home like this would mean everything. Ever since baby Allegra came to us, she has seemed to me just such another child as baby Judy must have been. She has ability and spirit. We must somehow furnish her with opportunity. She, too, deserves her share of the world's beauty and good as much as nature has fitted her to appreciate. And could any asylum ever give her that? I stood and thought and thought while Mr. Bretlin impatiently paced the floor. "'You have those boys down and let me talk to them,' Mr. Butlin insisted. "'If they have a spark of generosity, they'll be glad to let her go.' I sent for them, but my heart was a solid lump of lead. They were still missing their father. It seemed merciless to snatch away that darling baby sister, too. They came in hand in hand, sturdy, fine little chaps, and stood solemnly at attention, with big, wondering eyes fixed on the strange gentleman. "'Come here, boys, I want to talk to you.' He took each by a hand. "'In the house I live in we haven't any little baby, "'so my wife and I decided to come here, "'where there are so many babies without fathers and mothers, "'and take one home to be ours. "'She will have a beautiful house to live in, "'and lots of toys to play with, "'and she will be happy all her life, "'much happier than she could ever be here. "'I know that you will be very glad to hear "'that I have chosen your little sister.' "'And we won't see her any more?' asked Clifford. "'Oh, yes, sometimes.' "'Clifford looked from me to Mr. Rutland,' and two big tears began rolling down his cheeks. He jerked his hand away, and came and hurled himself into my arms. Don't let him have her, please! Please send him away! Take them all, I begged. But he's a hard man. I didn't come for an entire asylum, said he shortly. By this time Don was sobbing on the other side, and then who should inject himself into the hubbub but Dr. McRae, with baby Allegra in his arms? I introduced them and explained. Mr. Bretland reached for the baby and Sandy held her tight. Quite impossible, said Sandy shortly. Miss McBride will tell you that it's one of the rules of this institution never to separate a family. Miss McBride has already decided, said J. F. B., stiffly. We have fully discussed the question. You must be mistaken, said Sandy, becoming his scotchest, and turning to me. You surely had no intention of performing any such cruelty as this. Here was the decision of Solomon all over again, with two of the stubbornest men that the good lord ever made "'Resting poor Allegra, limb from limb. "'I dispatched the three chicks back to the nursery "'and returned to the fray. "'We argued loud and hotly, "'until finally J.F.B. echoed my own frequent query "'of the last five months. "'Who is the head of this asylum, "'the superintendent or the visiting physician?' "'I was furious with the doctor "'for placing me in such a position before that man, "'but I couldn't quarrel with him in public, "'so I had ultimately to tell Mr. Butlin "'with finality and flatness "'that Allegra was out of the question.' Would he not reconsider Sophie? No, he'd be darned if he'd reconsider Sophie, Allegra or nobody. He hoped that I realized that I had weakly allowed the child's entire future to be ruined. And with that parting shot, he backed to the door. Miss McRae, Dr. McBride, good afternoon. He achieved two formal bows and withdrew. And the moment the door closed, Sandy and I fought it out. He said that any person who claimed to have any modern, humane views on the subject of child care ought to be ashamed to have considered for even a moment the question of breaking up such a family. And I accused him of keeping her for the purely selfish reason that he was fond of the child and didn't wish to lose her. And that, I believe, is the truth. Oh, we had the battle of our career, and he finally took himself off with a stiffness and politeness that excelled J.F.B.'s. Between the two of them, I felt as limp as though I'd been run through our new mangling machine and then Betsy came home, and reviled me for throwing away the choicest family we have ever discovered. So this is the end of our week of feverish activity, and both Sophie and Allegra are, after all, to be institution children. Oh dear, oh dear, please remove Sandy from the staff, and send me instead a German, a Frenchman, a Chinaman, if you choose, anything but a Scotchman. Yours wearily, Sally. P.S. I dare say that Sandy is also passing a busy evening in writing to have me removed. I won't object if you wish to do it. I am tired of institutions. Dear Gordon, you are a captious, cavilling, carping, crapped, contentious, cantankerous chap. Hoot mon, and why shouldn't I drap into Scotch gin I choose? And I with a Mac in my name. Of course, the John Greer will be delighted to welcome you on Thursday next, not only for the donkey, but for your sweet, sunny presence as well. I was planning to write you a mile long letter to make up for past deficiencies, but what's the use? i'll be seeing you the morn's morn an uncou gul will be the sight of you for sernine dinna fash yourself laddie because of my language my forebears were from the Highlands, macbride dear judy all's well with the john greer except for a broken tooth a sprained wrist a badly scratched knee and one case of pink eye betsy and i are being polite but cool toward the doctor the annoying thing is that he is rather cool too And he seems to be under the impression that the drop in temperature is all on his side. He goes about his business in a scientific, impersonal way, entirely courteous, but somewhat detached. However, the doctor is not disturbing us very extensively at present. We are about to receive a visit from a far more fascinating person than Sandy. The House of Representatives again rests from its labors, and Gordon enjoys a vacation, two days of which he is planning to spend at the Brantwood Inn. I am delighted to hear that you have had enough seaside, and are considering our neighborhood for the rest of the summer. There are several spacious estates to be had within a few miles of the John Greer, and it will be a nice change for Jervis to come home only at weekends. After a pleasantly occupied absence, you will each have some new ideas to add to the common stock. I can't add any further philosophy just now on the subject of married life, having to refresh my memory on the Monroe Doctrine and one or two other political topics. I am looking eagerly forward to August and three months with you. As ever, Sally. Friday. Dear enemy, it's very forgiving of me to invite you to dinner after that volcanic explosion of last week. However, please come. You remember our philanthropic friend, Mr. Halleck, who sent us the peanuts and goldfish and other indigestible trifles? He will be with us to-night, so this is your chance to turn the stream of his benevolence into more hygienic channels. We dine at seven. As ever, Sally McBride Dear enemy, you should have lived in the days when each man inhabited a separate cave on a separate mountain. S. McBride End of Part 16